Hello, this is Kitty Kurth with Girl Pundits, and I am so excited today because for my conversation on Girl Pundits today, I have one of my personal heroes and a person who has really great stories, Ambassador Senator Carol Mosley Braun. Thank you, Welcome. Kitty. Delighted to be here. And if I could just, we, um, we like to start our day with a little cheers to the day and <laughs> cheers to the broadcast or the podcast, as the case may be. So, in addition to being one of the few people I know that's member that's a member of the Ambassador Senator Club, which we'll talk about a little bit later, I understand you just got back from France. I did. Tell me what you were doing over there. What was going on? Well, you know, this is the centenary of the end of World War One. It's a hundred years now, and I've been working with a group of people who are trying to. Uh, build a monument to the Doughboys in Washington, D.C. We have monuments to every other war, but not World War I in, in D.C. Wow, that seems crazy. It does seem weird. and uh, But the thing about it is that there's a huge World War I um, uh, museum in Kansas City, but there's no memorial in the, in the Capitol. And so I've been working with the group to build one, and, um, and it's become a passion of mine. And why is it a passion of yours? I think there's a little personal connection well, you're there not is telling a story. us about. Okay, my sister, I hope I know this is going out on the air, and I hope she doesn't kill me for saying this. My <laughs> sister's a picture thief. <laughs> Every family has one. <laughs> That's what my brother said. He said, why would you give your pictures to Marcia? You know she's a picture thief. <laughs> so anyway, so, um, uh, but I gave my sister some pictures to uh, for safekeeping, and when, she, when I finally got them back, in the bottom of the box was a picture of my grandfather. It was a painting, actually. And he was in a doughboy uniform. I knew he had been in World War I, but I just didn't know. I didn't have the details on it. So I've been spending the last uh, several months into years now trying to do my research and figure out exactly where he was. He, he earned medals that the military never gave him while he was alive. Wow. I was was a, that a common thing for the military to not give medals to African-American soldiers? Absolutely. There were 385,000 black soldiers in World War One. Say that again? 385,000. 385,000 black soldiers exactly. in World War One. I'm guessing that a lot of people listening to this Didn't don't know, know that, that and had never thought about that. Well, and, and again, that's one of the reasons why this search has been so fascinating for me, because I'm not only uncovering hidden history, uh, hidden family history, but also just history of a whole group of people 385,000 people is a lot of people. And there were, by the way, women also. There were black women. Really? Yes. The women were involved with uh, the YWCA and Southern or some other organizations to provide kind of support. But as you know, World War I uh, was the first time women came out of the home to work and to support, and in this case, they were supporting the soldiers. And, um, and so it's been my pleasure to actually delve into some of that. There's actually a book that I have that I found, and it's a quaint title. It's called Two Colored Girls with the American Expeditionary Forces in France. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. So, um, and it's, it's wonderful to catch up with this stuff. So I just got back from France because I went up to the north of France, the, the northern part, where the Meuse-Argonne battles took place. That was one of the medals that my grandfather earned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and remember, this, the armed forces were totally segregated in those days. Right. And, uh, and in fact, for me, the th- thing I'm really trying to get to was where did his patriotism come from? You know, that 
is a fascinating question, and it's one when in the past I've had the opportunity to interview some of the Tuskegee Airmen, right. and I that was in the back of my mind for them also. Well, that was World War II, um, right? And, but this this was World War One, which was even worse. Exactly, and, and when. African Americans, I assume, were treated even worse. Right, they're almost like slaves, and and so he was he was a member of the 366th Regiment, which was one of the few black regiments that actually had black officers, and so um, he he um, uh, and he deployed in France with the American Expeditionary Forces. At the time, our president was Woodrow Wilson, who who was such a bigot. I mean, <laughs> there's no, it's hard. There's no way around it. it. Yeah. He can't mince words. He was so awful. He didn't want the black soldiers under American command. And so what he did was he instructed General Pershing to uh, let put the black soldiers under French command and control. This is unheard of in the military. You just don't turn over command and control of any part of your... Right. Right. So so the entire 92nd Division, which of which the 366th Regiment was a part, uh, was given to French command and control. And so they deployed in France and were involved with uh, the battles there and the north of France. And as you can imagine, one of the things I learned and was shocking to me with this recent trip is how immediate this whole thing was. These people were run out of their homes. If you can imagine, it was right on the other side of the border from Belgium. And Mm -hmm. so when the German forces came down, they first destroyed Belgium, and then they came across into France, and the north of France was devastated. You had... And people had no warning. They had no warning. warning. Well, they kind of did. They knew it was coming, but they had no warning that it was going to be that kind of horrible. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, uh, one of the things that I, that I learned in this trip was that there are underground cities, and this is another mm-hmm. mystery, mysterious story. There are whole cities underground that had been carved out in the Middle Ages, where they were excavating for stone. And so, you know, we all hear that, all we that hear, beautiful, all those beautiful stone buildings right, in France. Right. And so we think about the trenches and we think about the barbed wire, but we don't really think about the underground caves. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine my age, I was spelunking cave diving. <laughs> I was. <laughs> but these were not shimmying down. Oh, a little, yes. I have pictures. Shimmying the, down a tunnel. Uh, yes. Oh, <laughs> too bad it's a podcast and not a video cast. I, I stopped this morning to get the pictures replicated so I could show them to you then yeah. I remembered well this is radio there's no way she can't <laughs> we can't share the pictures well we have we have the means we have a Facebook page we have a web page we can post some all right I'll, g- some I'll give them to you uh, but anyway and I was reminded again late Senator Paul Simon who was one of my mentors said uh, you got a good face for radio so it's like <laughs> So, and he did, and that voice, he had that storytelling voice. Oh, he was wonderful. He was wonderful. So anyway, I went down into the caves to look at some of these um, excavated areas where the soldiers hung out uh, while they were being bombarded up up top. And, um, and in fact, there were a couple places where you could see they had carved, literally they had carved into the stone. Everything from crosses to uh, Masonic symbols to Jewish symbols to Maori symbols. I mean, there was all these carvings down there. In addition, some of the soldiers had carved uh, this way to hell, uh, pointing to the steps that would take you upstairs, up top to where where the the actual battle was going on. So it was really fascinating. I was really delighted um, at the reception I got. The people were so nice. And again, World War I is very immediate for them because it was such, it was 
the war that changed the world and created the world that we inherited, that we were born into. Yeah, and they're on the battlefield. I think that's always something that, you know, Americans, since the Civil War, but we've never really had war here and exactly allows us to be removed from it what was was there any like one takeaway or anything that you were the most surprised at um well yes i mean i guess the fact to see the immediacy of the battle you could actually see where buildings had you know, pockmarks from, from the bullets and things. Even still from 100 years ago. Oh, yes, absolutely, ago. absolutely. So wow. you could still see some of that. And you could see that um, that the people were uh, still recovering in some of the communities because the communities were totally devastated in many instances. Mm-hmm. And so people were just now coming back to some of them. That's uh, fascinating, yeah, 100, 100 years, years later. later. Exactly. So, um, uh, so those were a couple of things that were really horrible. One of the other things that I haven't looked into yet um, has to do with what happened in the aftermath of the war. So mm-hmm. the war ended in 1918, and when the soldiers came back home, many of them came back home. There was a Spanish flu pandemic. That's right. And so, and so many of them came home and found out that their family and friends had died from the flu. While they were gone. While they were gone. And, um, and in fact, for those people who are listening who are Down Abbey fans, mm-hmm. <laughs> Think about it. That whole section of Down Abbey <clears throat> was about World War One, and and so one of the character dies of the Spanish flu. Right. And that was actually very real because almost a 33 33 uh, percent of military deaths were from uh, the flu, as opposed to actually being from, killed from a bullet or anything. Exactly. Oh wow. Yeah. And so um, so those those things were were uh, shocking. And again, this, the, the fact that World War I is so uh, prominent in the minds of the French and the people in that part of the world, and over here, we, A, don't pay much attention to it. It's like, oh, well. Uh, uh, and so the, the, the memorial is going to be built. In fact, they've fin- they finished the fundraising pretty much, but if you want to go and give some money, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, so okay, they've, they've finished the fundraising, but they've got the maquette, which is the, the statue that's going to be built. And so that part is all worked through by the commission. But I can't wait to be there for the ribbon cutting. And you were in France traveling recently, and people know that you were a United States senator and a United States ambassador. Did anyone happen to talk to you about current-day U.S. politics <laughs> while you were there? Everybody wanted to talk about current-day U.S. politics. What did they, what's going on? What did they ask? What did oh. they say? Um, you know, the Europeans look at us, from what I can tell, they're trying to figure out what happened over here, although it's happening there. Quite frankly, uh, in France, th- that was I was there at the time. This is my second, just lucky, I guess. Mm-hmm. This is my second time being in France where there was some major disturbance. I was yeah. there when the um, first terrorist bombing happened mm-hmm. uh, around the, um, the the newspaper, the magazine. And then this time, of course, it was the Yellow Jackets, the Gilijan, right, mm-hmm. and and marching all through Paris and uh, and other places. And, and again, so this whole um, um, fracturing of the community is happening all over the place. And Europeans, I think, see what happened over here uh, in the context of that. Well, yes. And as, as I've talked about before, you know, we work a lot in Europe. And I saw what was happening there with the rise of Marine Le Pen in France and 
the crazy guy in Hungary and what was going on with the rise of the um, fascist, the neo-Nazi party in Sweden and all over. And I saw that coming here. What I never dreamed of was that Trump would be at the tip of the arrow. I never dreamed that. I knew something would happen here, but I never dreamed it would be Trump. Uh, can we have a conversation without talking about him? Would you yes. mind? <laughs> yeah, no, we can switch. But I am going to talk a little bit about politics just because um, some really cool things happened this week. For example, Nancy Pelosi became right. Speaker of the House Which was for wonderful. the second time yes. in history. Only a feat only Sam Rayburn has done. And did you see any of her, any of her swearing in yesterday or anything? I did not, and I I, I hate to say that. It's because, okay. I know you're a recovering politician. Well, and I and, and Nancy Pelosi is. A, I mean, I, I like her a lot, and and um, we've been friends for years. And so, you know, I really needed to have seen it. It would have been the right thing to do. I well, just was too busy. One of the things that she did that was just a different way of women doing things because we see things with different eyes. When she was going to actually be gaveled in, she asked her grandchildren and all the children in the chamber to come up onto the podium with her because she said, this is not about me, this is about them. them. That's right. And that's how women think. And that's why I've always thought that, you know, there needed to be more women involved in the process, more women running for office, because even if women run and aren't successful, having their voice in the debates matters at the table. And as you and I both know, in 2004, you were spurred on by one of your young relatives. By my niece. Tell us what what happened. My niece was 10 years old at the time. And uh, I was visiting with my brother, and my niece said, Auntie Carol, come quick. So I went into her room, and she was sitting there. Her little feet didn't even touch the ground. She was in her chair doing homework. And her social studies book was open to the middle. And she looked at it, and she looked up at me. She said, Auntie Carol, all the presidents are boys. And I said, sweetie, girls can be president, too. And when I came out of the room, my brother said, what's the matter? I said, I just lied to Claire. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I had. I, yeah. And so he said, well, so what are you going to do about it? I said, well, and that was how my campaign for president got started. Um, it was really more to show Claire that girls can be president, too, and can run for president uh, as well. And so that was that was really my motivation at the time. And, um, and and so what Nancy did was wonderful. I meant to tell you, I, I kind of skipped over this, but one of the things in France that was the most heartwarming to me was that a bunch of French school children had learned um, uh, uh, the Christmas song in English, and they came out and performed for me. It oh, was nice. just so sweet, and I was—I'll never forget. I, in fact, I have pictures of that, and I will, you can put that on your on your blog or whatever. <laughs> yeah, kids get it. Kids get it. Mm-hmm. But um, but running for president. I, you know, and as in 2004, while at full disclosure, when you told me you were running for president, I did not think you could necessarily win in the field at the time. There were a lot of guys who had already been running, had raised money. But I thought to myself, A, when your friend says she's running for president, you say, how can I help? That's you did. the only appropriate answer. And I really answer. appreciate it. I'll never forget you for it. But I learned so many things on that campaign. And I'm going to ask you about some of the things you learned, but... One of the things that was the most striking to me, and I've actually talked about this in another podcast episode that I did, but, you know, when you prepare men 
for men candidates for president or vice president for debates or for forums. You spend three days, you have nine binders, and quite honestly, when we prepared you for the debate, it was usually me or my husband, Kevin Lampy, and talking to you for a couple hours, you thinking about issues that were important to you, that you already knew cold, there was no preparation necessary, you understood the, uh, the issue, you knew the facts, and it was just such a different process. And then when you got out on the debate stage, it seemed to me like you were not nervous because you knew what you were talking about. Is that how it Thank seemed? Thank you very to you? much. No, no, or? that's that's wonderful. And except that, you know, one of the reporters here in town said I was delusional even trying. <laughs> Somebody's got, somebody's got to be the first. <laughs> uh, or as 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 uh, Eleanor Cliff once said to me, you can always tell a pioneer by the arrows in their back, right? <laughs> so, That's exactly right. So. That is exactly right. And <laughs> I will tell you one thing that made a huge difference that might not seem like it, but in the world of advance that I work in, which is the theater and the logistics behind the politics, mm -hmm. we had to fight so hard to get them to not use bar stools oh, for exactly. all the debates. I don't know if you remember, I but do. that the Rock the Vote debate in Boston, we told them specifically no bar stools. And Kevin got to the studio and there were bar stools and he said, What's going on? And they said, Oh, well, we had some of the interns tested out and they could get on and off just fine. And he said, Show me the interns. And he was and they were like, Oh, well, they're women. Well, they were young women. And they were wearing pants. Like, Wearing pants, 5'10", who, as Kevin pointed out, had probably been on and off a bar stool more in the last <laughs> week than you had been in the last five years. You're also, you're petite. Right. You know, John Thank Kerry you. is six feet four. For him to get on and off of a bar stool versus a five... Three. Three. Exactly. Woman in a skirt, like, that's a difference. But for those of you paying attention at home, you will notice that... In 2016, Hillary Clinton was not required to get on and off a bar stool at any of the debates, at any it of the It made a debates. difference. And it's crazy little logistics things like right. that. But, you know, campaigning. Like, I always make sure that on a schedule, there's a note, especially for women candidates, about, like, what's the weather like? Where are we going to be walking? What kind of footwear is doable? What kind of footwear shouldn't you be wearing? It's different running as a woman. And you once told me, and I don't know if this is still true, so I'm going to ask you again, was it harder running for political office as a woman or as an African-American? Well, you'll recall, uh, was it Ginger Rogers who once said, I have to do everything he does but backwards and in high heels? Exactly. You know, and, and so the fact of the matter is that there are there are particular things that have to do with gender. Um, um, and, and I think, I've, I've said to you before, Kitty, gender is universal, race is local. And I've gotten, gotten in trouble yeah. for that statement, but I stand I by think it. It's, I think it's the truest thing. Well, it's the truth, because again, my experience being both, when you're both, you get a chance to see this. And so, and I've traveled the world, as you know, and, um, and I can tell you that wherever in the world I go, Gender is the first divide, and that makes the difference. Being black is only relevant here in the United States. It's also relevant in South America and places like that. But, but it really, when you're abroad, it's, it, it's, there's a different take on being black. 
but you because you're first an American when you're in Europe or in Africa, the first thing they have they do is relate to you as an American. So it's like that's the first. Aaron Freeman always said they hate you first for being American way before they notice right. you're black. Exactly, he's exactly right. So uh, and then and then after American, then then they get to gender and then they get to your color. And so it's 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 a it's a it's all of these different boxes that people get put into, and we have to be mindful that that's that it's there, it's in the water, and it's just something you have to be mindful of and deal with. It's not anything you can you can either count on or push against because you can't change it overnight, but you can change it by being there, by stepping forward, being heard, and speaking with an authentic voice about what you believe. Uh, this is Kitty Kurth with Girl Pundits, and I'm here talking today with Ambassador, Senator Carol Mosley Braun. And um, let's talk about the ambassador part for a minute. Um, you were ambassador to New Zealand and, as you say, ambassador to paradise. Um, did, was it different there? Did they treat women in politics different there? Oh, they did. And it was interesting to me because I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. When I got to New Zealand, <laughs> I think the, you might the have. president the president was a woman. She was the second female prime minister president. Um, the head of the parties, uh, the, the biggest party there was a female. The head of the Supreme Court was a woman. The head of the biggest corporation was a woman. And so I'm looking around. These women are in positions of power everywhere. And and even in the communities, women were in leadership. And there was less of a, of a, of a drag on their ability to contribute based on gender. And so, again, it was very interesting to me how different that culture was uh, than what I had, had experienced. Um, what year was that? I got to New Zealand in 93. So that was a while ago. Mm -hmm. That was a while ago, and things were already that progressed. Did they have um, social services? Did they have good child care and things that supported women and made it easier for women to participate? They had paid medical leave for pregnancy, and they had people who we would call them doulas who, mm -hmm. to come and help with newborns, and so they had that as well as a matter of governmental policy. I was stunned. But governmental policy can promote equality. It can't make people treat you different, but it can make at a level playing field. And what it did was it gave, it was support for families. I mean, you think about it, when somebody, I'm a new grandmother. I think I just mentioned that to you. Maybe twins? <laughs> With twins, <laughs> exactly. And so. The most beautiful twins ever are born, they going I ever, think. Ever, yeah. ever, ever, above average, right? So, <laughs> so um, and when I look at and observe my daughter-in-law and my son dealing with these twins it really is it, one it convinces me that that's why that's why the good lord gave young people babies because there's no way I can handle it personally yeah um, uh, but 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 the fact is that having that kind of support is really vitally important because it's a lot of work and you can't very well if you're a single person a single working woman there's no way that you can continue to provide for your family and take care of that family at the same time it just is impossible so having the support is vitally important to keeping families together and helping support again, your community as a whole. I completely agree. And it's one of those things that I think we are so short-sighted about when we talk about the United States being able to compete 
globally, to compete globally on an academic scale, on an economic scale? How can we compete globally when, you know, I always use Sweden as an example because I know it best, but in Sweden, you know, they get more than 400 days of maternity and paternity leave for both parents to right. take off while the child is young. Then there's state-supported nursery school, and then there's school, and you know there's support every length of the way. So yes, women can be half of government in Sweden, but they can also be half of executives at every other level and half of everything because there's support. Right. And how, if we are keeping half of our population out of the workforce, out of the academic force, how can we ever compete globally well, in a real way? We no can't. wonder we're losing. We can't. And and I, I I don't know, Kitty. I'm not going to agree with you that we're losing. I mean, we're still holding our own in spite of all these barriers. Uh, but at the same time, if you go into a, a global competition with one hand, with half your population disabled because of this, uh, or, or 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 burdened with with. Uh, traditional duties without the support from the community as a whole, which is all that, at the end of the day, that's what government is. The government represents what the community as a whole wants and and, and a democracy. And so really our challenge is to get our government focused on the kinds of priorities and values that we have as a community of people. And that includes support for women, support for children, and helping families meet the challenges of, 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 of existence. And it's really, and you know, people always talk about these things in such a big way, but it really is that. It comes out down to support, support for one person so exactly. they can take care of their own family. And you tell a great story about a starfish that is... it. It always strikes me, and I remember it. Can you tell that starfish story? I was afraid you're going to ask me that, and I'm and I'm frankly trying to trying to remember it. Well, well, I'll help you a little bit. Okay. There was a guy walking down a beach, mm-hmm. and there was a starfish on a beach, as okay. I recall you telling it, and the guy went and threw the starfish back in the water, and. You know, there were thousands of other starfish, and somebody asked him, you know, what what difference does it make, you know, throwing that one starfish back in? And I think the punchline is something about, well, it makes a lot of difference to that one starfish. That's exactly right. Now I remember the story. Thank you very much. (laughs) So in my life, that made a huge difference because I sometimes get a little depressed. I work on big, you know, human rights issues. And you think, you know, like, oh, my God, I can't ever help right. everybody. Right. But a couple years ago, um, through Human Rights Friends, a kid landed on our doorstep who was an asylum seeker and who was stateless and didn't, you know, have anybody in the U.S. to help him. And I was like, well, what, you know, what can I do? And I kept thinking about that damn starfish. Yeah. And I was like, well, I can't help everybody. But you can help this person. But you can help one person. That's right. That's right. And that's where it starts. If you help one person, you know, one person and one person and one person, and pretty soon you get to a critical mass, and that makes change. That's right. 
change happens one person at a time. And you have always been a person that understood and hasn't been afraid to step forward and make change. And, you know, over the years, you've got a lot of arrows in your back, like Eleanor Clift said. But let's let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about Let's talk about how you got into politics, uh-huh. making change for those who could not help themselves. In the neighborhood, it was the Bobolinks. <laughs> the Park District was going to build a golf driving range in Jackson Park, which is still there, by the way. And, um, and a bunch of neighbors got together to protest because it was going to destroy the habitat for the Bobolinks. There were Bobolinks. What's a Bobolink? A Bobolinks is a rice bird. It's not supposed to be in Chicago. It's native to South Carolina. And the fact that we even had any was quite extraordinary, according to the bird people. So, <laughs> This is an aside, but remember, we also have green parrots in Hyde Park. Yes, but, we do. We did. So, so, But getting back to the bobolink. Yes. So we have the green. And in fact, I had a one of my state legislative friends said, I knew state, Hyde Park was weird. When I saw the green parrots, I was convinced of it. <laughs> so, and they were always outside Mayor Harold Washington's Right, they were. House. And he, he adopted them. He said, these are my parrots. <laughs> so... But, but you and the bobolinks. Right. So we, we were, there was a fellow by the name of Doug uh, who was leading the bird watchers. And I wasn't a bird watcher, but at the same time, I cared about the parks. And so we were, he started, uh, he just organized a group of people to go in March to protest the golf driving range. And I joined that. I joined that march and to protest the golf driving range and to support the bobolinks. There's, somewhere there's a picture. I'm going to find it one day. It says, <laughs> Park District, no, bobolinks, yes. <laughs> so... So I'm out there uh, uh, agitating for the bobolinks, and that was, and that's what was what inspired one of my neighbors who was political, because I had never, it had never occurred to me to get into electoral politics at that point, and it encouraged her to come and say, "I think you'd be good." A state representative just re- announced he's retiring. I think you'd be good at it, and so she basically encouraged me to consider it. And I didn't at first. It's like, oh, no, you know, who me, you know. Yeah, that's that's not for me. Right. I'm not political. That's not for me. Right. I think we had several million women, like, come to the same conclusion you did this year that, oh, maybe it is for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, why not? I mean, the, the, the why not question is the one. If not yes. you, then who? And if not now, then when? So, so you know, if you can answer those questions uh, honestly to yourself, then that will inspire you to do the right thing, I think. And so, you know, I got out there and got elected to the state legislature in the first year of the woman, by the way. And in the state legislature, I think because um, her career is coming to an end, I think you met a seatmate there. Right. That we should talk a little bit about because I think she is somebody who never gets the due that she should be given. And that is Barbara Flynn Curry. And we were elected at the same time, and that was one of the reasons they called it Year of the Woman, because here was a district uh, abutting Lake Michigan that had two female state representatives. This was, there there was only a handful of women in the state legislature at the time. And to have a district produce two in a single election was really quite extraordinary. And so Barbara and I went to Springfield at the same time, and it was and she she did a great job. She went into the leadership. She became she just retired this year, but she did a great job. It she did, and I think no one really 
talks about how extraordinary it was for her to be a woman in leadership all those years because if there's anywhere that's a little more chauvinistic than Washington, D.C. It's Springfield, Illinois. It's Springfield, Illinois. (laughs) Well, it's been great talking to Ambassador Senator Carol Mosley-Braun today. Is there anything else you want to chat about? We could chat for another five hours. We could. We We could do it again, but is there anything else you want to talk about today? No, I think you pretty much hit it. That's great. All right, well then let's... Raise our glasses to a better 2019 than 2018. Cheers, and thanks for listening to Girl Pundits today. This is Kitty Kurth, and I really appreciate you tuning in. Bye-bye.